Hi, my name is Stefan Tupek and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben. Uh, welcome to Purgatory, uh, host wraps for the Cinematography yeah. Podcast. It's it maybe Limbo. Maybe it's Limbo more than Purgatory. It could, it could be. You are in a remote location. I am in a remote location. We are not in the yes. same room. We're, we're both in the same city-ish. We're both in L.A. County. We're both in the same city, but as far as I'm concerned, we might as well be on different planets because I ain't going anywhere near you. <laughs> Thanks. Feel, feel really good. Uh, I, I do not seem to have the coronavirus. For all I know, you've got the coronavirus. Well, half the reason, literally half the reason I'm not going to go anywhere near you is so I don't give it to you. Great. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> oh, is that, so, is that uh, you admitting to having it right now? Is that what you're saying? No, no. I'm saying the other half is you giving it to me. Ah, uh, okay. Because so, we uh, might both be so, carriers and asymptomatic. We, might, yeah. we, we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to bring doom and gloom to the otherwise cheerful topic of cinematography, which usually brings me nothing but cheers. But here we are, and uh, we are, uh, a few people have reached out, and they're interested in uh, us continuing to do this, and we are continuing to do this. In the future, you might notice a slight change in our interview style in that we're going to be doing them over Zoom and not in person for the duration of the coronavirus. I will still be recording myself, and if Ilya is doing the interview, he'll still be recording himself uh, with the good gear. But the other side will be recorded via Skype or Zoom or one of those things. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do th- our best that's how to, we can continue to do it, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll do our best to try to actually find a way to find a way to make it sound good, because typically a lot of the podcasts that do that sort of thing sound terrible. And we've always tried to hold ourselves to a higher standard. But as uh, there is this uh, pandemic going on, we we figured it's better to release more episodes and lower our standards yeah. a little than not to release them. One of my go-to catchphrases is don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. And I'd rather keep making podcasts than stop making podcasts because we have a a standard of audio recording that we want to stick to. We will have plenty of time to get back to that, hopefully by this summer. Yeah. So, Ilya, who is on the show today? Well, well, Ben, it's a it's someone you interviewed. It's uh, Stefan Schupek, as I I, I didn't have to say it before. Hopefully I I said it correctly. Maybe you can pronounce his last name. This interview came together so quickly and so amazingly my friend Yuri Lowenthal had a birthday event where he invited a bunch of people to go see a movie called Guns Akimbo which seemed like a lot of fun now streaming and uh, my wife and I uh, we made it a whole date night and got a babysitter and all that stuff so we could go see Guns Akimbo and, and like my mind was blown by the movie and as always happens uh, after I see movies I'm like who the hell shot this because it is a gorgeous looking amazing just bananas movie it's so good and uh we looked him up and his credits were just nuts the stuff this guy has done and not just from a cinematography standpoint but from a technology standpoint and uh in an effort to uh i i think that it was one of those things where the stars aligned because hadn't hadn't they reached out to us about getting us to interview him or they did wasn't there some yeah and so excitedly like you were like would you like to interview him and i'm like uh fuck yeah and uh, he and, and you just week, seen the movie we, you you had just like literally seen it a couple days before with yuri exactly and uh he is a fascinating guy with an amazing story like the stuff this guy's done is going to blow your mind but i'm going to leave it for the interview 
Ilya, what is our close focus? Well, our close focus actually ties in directly with Stefan's movie, Guns Akimbo, his most recent movie. That's now available for you to like a uh, VOD pay-per-view type of uh, streaming. You can stream that. I, I'll have to double check the service or we'll put it in the show notes. I want to say Amazon, but one of the big services now, or maybe it's a- Apple TV. We'll have to look, uh, but you can watch Guns Akimbo. So you can... Uh, well, Amazon now has a section called like Amazon Cinema, and it's basically movies that are like five seconds out of the theater. And I think that's exactly the case. And that's actually our close focus today is that quite a few of the studios our are doing George this. George Foyt close focus. <laughs> oh, George. I need to say our George Foyt close I, focus. I, I, every, every time you mention George now, I'm going to purposely try to like not mention George so that we can just have this exchange every time. That's okay. George <laughs> will know that I'm a better friend. Oh, Uh, Sorry, George. Uh, Anyway, here's the thing. A lot of the studios not really understanding or knowing what to do in the face of a global pandemic, because let's face it, this is the first one that most of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. It's the first one since since 1918. So cinema was in a slightly different place back then. We've had other pandemics. Five or six MCU movies at that point. We have had other pandemics, but they were not the big global experiences that we're having right now. Not the same sort of potentially like, you know life-changing, economy corrupting uh, experience on a, on a global scale. It's pretty nuts. Uh, and, uh, you know, like one of the many non-essential things in the world are movie theaters. They're, Turns out know, movies. Kind of assen- yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love, I, I want to go to movie theaters, but uh, yeah, we, we will all live if we don't see another movie for the rest of our lives. And uh, so all the movie theaters that I know of are closed. Uh, I, I don't, I'm, I'm sure that there are some states that still have movie theaters open. And uh, if you're listening to the sound of my voice and you're thinking about going to see a movie in a theater, get your head examined. Do not do it. Don't go see a movie in a theater. Hmm. Hmm. So uh, as a reaction to that, presumably as a reaction to that, but also I think it's just something the studios have been toying with for a long time closing down that window between uh when when movies ran theatrically and when they were available for vod and by the way to get these on vod it's like 20 bucks so it's more expensive than a movie ticket certainly more expensive than a movie ticket for one person uh but but if you've Um, got a room full of people of course during the pandemic you may not uh maybe maybe during the pandemic don't have a room full of people for any reason i mean unless they're just all your family and that's what you got you got a big family you're all hanging out i get it Okay, so, uh, but yes, uh, Birds of Prey, uh, there's a lot of movies that, I, that didn't you have a, have a list of all the stuff? The Invisible Man, which, which was like you the number saw. one movie in yeah. theaters three weeks ago, is, is you can currently, right now, watch on Amazon for 20 bucks, I think. And if you do not like your choices and you want to see something brand new, uh, this day and date release system means that you are up on it like everybody who could have been out in the theater right now who are not. Yeah, and in, in part, like, I mean... I, we'll see if they back off of this when the movie theaters reopen again, presumably in, in a few months at the latest, hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see if they, uh, if, if they back the, off of this or if this is just a way for them to try and make money from their movies, you know, from their existing movies that were in the pipeline and getting released. I mean, imagine, just imagine you're a filmmaker and you busted your ass for two, three, five years, whatever, to get your movie made. You got a theatrical release, which is, you know, kind of a rarefied thing to get these days. Let's say you got all of those things to happen. And then, you know, the pandemic hits and your movie's just going to sort of get sat on, uh, get released when the theaters reopen. Like when you think about it from a distributor's point of view, it's kind of a mess. Like, what do you do? Because these things are meticulously planned. 
I have been in the rooms where the studios have every movie being released week by week by every studio, like a giant graph, and they they can project it usually like two years out. And of course, a lot of them change over those two years, but still, you can't just say, oh, okay, everything that was going to be released in March, we'll just push that to July. That's not how that's going to happen. So they need to figure out how to how to get it out. But the real question is, if this is a successful experiment, will they start shortening the windows between theatrical and uh, VOD? Oh, we we will be watching. Oh, I found that list. Here's the list. Um, Pixar's new film Onward now available. Uh, mm-hmm. I mentioned Birds of Prey, and you mentioned The Invisible Man. Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman, Sonic the Hedgehog. If uh, if you were looking for that, that's now available. Uh, Emma. Uh, the Way Back, the Ben Affleck movie, and then uh, The Hunt, Bloodshot, which is uh, Vin Diesel. The uh, Hunt is an unfair one to mention because that was kind of canceled by the studio and then they announced they were going to release it again. Okay. Like, you know, there were like protests. I mean, it was being juggled by the studio. Uh, also, there is uh, Trolls World Tour. If you uh, if you were had a bunch of unanswered questions from the first Trolls movie, there's another family friendly Trolls I sure World Tour. Uh, Disney Plus is also getting Frozen Two and Star Wars Early, so uh, trying to entice people to subscribe to the uh, Disney Plus platform. Uh, that's all. That's all fair. So, uh, what is your take of all this? What's your opinion? Wow, um, I got to say that I'm a little bit torn. I really like seeing movies in the theater, even though I haven't gotten to see them there as as often as I would like. I really do want the theaters to exist and to not go away. But at the same time, it will be nice to be able to see all these things from home. It will be nice to not have to go out and uh, face a crowd, even though we can't face a crowd anyway. I, I hope that we do get a return to normalcy. I don't mind windows and understand completely that if I want to see something early, I usually have to pay a little bit more. And uh, I get the added benefit of hearing premium sound going probably to see, at least in Los Angeles, we have a lot of places with really premium theatrical experiences, really comfortable seats, really, really big screen, really uh, good high quality stuff. Some other places might be, uh, you know, maybe we're spoiled here and maybe the experience isn't quite so good and would be better to see it at home, especially if you have a nice theater mm. set up. But um, I, yeah. I make an argument that I know a lot of people don't agree with, but this is my argument. I prefer seeing things in a theater when the audience is part of the experience. Mm, snakes, snakes on a plane. Well, that was a unique experience seeing snakes on a plane with a full audience that like, you know, a movie that when I saw it later, I was like, I don't like this as much now. Uh, it, it <laughs> I saw that with you in the theater. Yeah, it was. I, that was a pretty amazing screening. Um, but I think even if you go to like a run of the mill, just a very good comedy or a very good horror movie, the laughs are going to be bigger with a crowd. The scares are going to be scarier with a crowd, like having a, a crowd to uh, amplify the emotions of the of the story. And it's one of the reasons that 3D doesn't work as well, in my opinion, for me anyway, is because I feel like it makes me feel like I'm watching it in my living room, like it, it it's getting rid of the audience audience and all that stuff it's it's cutting off my peripheral vision and it's making me less aware of being part of an audience and to me you know there's a difference between like if you go see a play in a theater on you know on stage with an audience versus if you uh you know see a a a filmed version of that play even a really well filmed version of that play but by yourself at home it it's not it doesn't have the same vibe there's there's something that the audience brings to the experience of watching a movie that you don't get at home now for some movies that's not really the crux of it like 
you know, for, for a lot of movies, frankly. And a lot of movies are extremely entertaining from home. I'm not, I'm not saying they aren't. But as television screens have become pretty amazing in quality, I still have to ask myself, why is it that I'm drawn to the theater? Is it is it just my habit? Or am I getting extra value for, like, you know, driving somewhere and parking and getting popcorn and a Coke Zero and sitting in a, in a seat and watching it, you know, at a specified time instead of just watching it at home whenever I feel like it on VOD? And I, I believe that that's part of a big part of the value. I think that that's part of the reason that we like going to movies and theaters versus going to movie versus watching them on a, on a screen at home. Now, given that no one can go to the movies now, I understand if you want to see the invisible man, there's only one way to see it now. And that's on VOD. I don't, I don't believe that there's a movie theater open in the country, but again, if there is, uh, you're crazy if you go there. Okay. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think that that's a that's a good place to leave that for for close focus. And before we get into the interview and Guns Akimbo and everything else that you guys talk about, I want to read something really quick here. Producer Alana Cody just sent me a message actually from Ben Katz, our editor in Seattle, who uh, I think I, I think you'll agree here. It'd be nice to to read on the episode uh, since Ben here doesn't yeah. usually get a voice. Uh, but so Mr. Katz, please uh, leave this in. He writes to us uh, very lovingly here. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ilya and Ben, so much for keeping this podcast going through this. I've been reading all the nice comments online, as well as noticing a huge bulk of them being uh, being from the last few months and feeling like I'm helping to make a positive change in a lot of people's lives. I know it may sound corny, but it's true, and I'm really happy to be part of this right now. Hey, uh, Ben oh. Katz, thank, thank you so much for writing in uh, to us. That, yeah, ben, that's, that's fantastic. We're so happy to have you on board. Like, like, like you know, really. where would we be like, without you? Like, really. And also, like, you know, the fact that you are in Seattle, which is, you know, I think, uh, I don't think still is the hardest hit city uh, with the coronavirus. I think New York is getting it worse at the moment, but uh, Seattle was ground zero and we've been, you know, worried about you about it. Yes, indeed. So, Ben, hey, uh, thank you so much for that message. And uh, now let's get to the interview. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm here in Burbank at uh, Hot Rod Cameras with Stefan Schubeck. Did I say it right? Correct. Oh, God. brilliant. All right. <laughs> the DP, among other things, of the amazing uh, Guns Akimbo, which is out right now. Thank you so much for coming out. We kind of start, and I, I can't wait to hear your answer to this. Uh, the first question I usually ask everybody to kind of get us in the, in the mode is when you're reading a script, I have a belief that DPs tend to either see it in terms of a series of compositions or they see like the color palette, the lighting that they're going to do. And you can also tell me that my question is completely stupid for whatever reason. But like, what is it that you see when you read a script? Um, every script that I read is very, very different and you see different things. Sometimes you just follow the story, the flow of the lead character mm -hmm. and just kind of um, see no images, just so intrigued and excited about the story and mm -hmm. sometimes it's just an it's just a blast of references and images that i already see while reading the script so uh, all these experiences are very different um so what is your process of 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 like looking through a script and kind of like let's assume that you you've already been chosen to shoot a movie but you're meeting with the director for the first time about it or a, a commercial or whatever what is the process that you go through to kind of 
come up with the, the visual idea that you're, that's going to be the guiding principle for what you're going to do. Yeah. So when I'm reading the script for the first time, I just kind of, I'm very open to the experience it's going to give me. Sometimes I really feel inspired and already see and feel mm -hmm. reference images and, on, and, and have ideas of how to approach the film visually. Sometimes it's a flow, flow of images. And sometimes I just am uh, very excited to hear what the director's vision and ideas. But I always try to be very open-minded Uh, to keep my thoughts for myself in the beginning so I hear first what the director and scriptwriter had in mind because they have been on a f much longer journey with the film. Yeah. So this sometimes doesn't match completely so I try to be first inspired by the thoughts of a director and then complement to that. And then I'm also kind of very interested because quite often the production designer is already involved so it's a, it's a working triangle. So you have like the, the director with a vision and then two people, the production designer and me kind of complementing this and um, on most of the project it then becomes a pool of ideas. Um, mm -hmm. Usually we set up a Dropbox and kind of uh, very, I like to be abstract in the beginning. I try not to be too direct with references from other films. So quite often looking for images, photographs, paintings. And if it's images from films, I don't specifically look for certain films, but actually just try to find a mood and keep it kind of broad and more artistic. So one doesn't get into the moment that you kind of start to apply some other different look onto your story. Uh -huh. But I always try to find an original look. All of my films, no matter what references I take, I have a unique approach. Every single story deserves to have their own image world. And that's if you look at my body of work, my films as a DP and also kind of before as a colorist, then you'll see that they are hugely different in genres and formats and in the visual narrative um, and I try to be just this kind of uh, freshly new newborn uh, artist working <laughs> on each project how like is there a secret for for doing that like how how to kind of reset your mind and and especially if you've been soaking in references and and whatever it is you know paintings photographs how to kind of say okay I sort of like this composition or this kind of lighting or whatever from this from these references now I'm going to forget all that like how do you how do you wash it out of your mind before you start a project I, th I think for me it was just uh, the process of growing up and growing more mature I think the first short mm -hmm. films I did were fully referenced of other things and I kind of like to imitate and try things that I've seen and I liked And the more I'm doing this now, I'm, I started 22 years ago. So the, the longer I'm in the process, the more kind of detached I feel from direct comparisons, direct other images or photographs and things. I just try to kind of get an idea, a glimpse of something and then kind of project it, project the script into a new form of uh, an image. That's cool. So you kind of have a different story than a lot of other people as, uh, from what I've been able to get from you online and, and on your website and stuff in that you kind of came up and you actually just mentioned this as a colorist. Were you always headed towards being a cinematographer yourself or did you like did your course diverge while you were working as a colorist and as a, a, a technologist of sorts? So I started my interest in film purely as a consumer early on at 16, 17. I got mm -hmm. all of a sudden fascinated by filmmakers and by uh, their their visual worlds they've created. And there was a point where I kind of mostly was captivated by how images can actually transport the story and actually in, in a cinematic field, it's this great collaboration of the director and production designer. And, and I've, I, I basically uh, early on started reading and looking at behind the scenes documentaries, trying to figure out how do you get this emotion into one image, this one particular shot that 
touches me, moves me. How do you, how do those people do that? So I started reading a lot of behind the scenes stuff and film theory books as well, and and uh, kept watching more and more films. Very open to genres. I was diving into Tarkovsky, Russian classical. That was, that was my next question. Like, yeah. who, who are the ones that were? Uh, that it's, were I, it's it's huge. I was so. And, and where yeah. are you growing up, by the okay. way? Okay, <laughs> I'm half Polish, so my father's Polish, my mother's mm. German. I grew up in East Germany. Um, on the side of the Cold War before East the war, Germany. Oh, wow. East Germany, yeah, yeah. and so that was one thing: uh, travel restrictions uh, and the fear of being spied upon and actually yeah. not being free to express yourself. My mother was always, um, my mother uh, has been this free-spirited artist always. She worked as a translator, but she uh, was fighting against the socialist system herself, and this had lots of repercussions. So we, um, at some point, had to decided that we had to, or my mother decided we had to escape the wall. So we uh, we actually is, uh, we we left uh, East Germany for Poland, lived for three years in Poland, and then how, uh, how old were you when you left? I was ten years old. Oh wow! So at at the age of ten years, uh, basically all I took was a little suitcase. I had to leave everything behind, knowing that I probably won't see these friends. Oh, I leave man. ever uh, again and leaving the country and then going to Poland, uh, which at the time was even harder to live in than in East Germany yeah. because GDR was kind of a bit higher in terms of the social situation, life, lifestyle and everything. And then three years later, we re- we left for the West and uh, again, with nothing more than what we could carry pretty much. West R- Germany? West Berlin. West Berlin, okay. Yeah, West Berlin. And I think part of this hardship uh, as being a, a child going through these things made me grow up very fast and ma- made me interest. I, I also felt like this need uh, of escape uh, from the hard reality of the childhood. So films became my little escape route, my escape room. So little <laughs> worlds I was diving into. And I think I needed this to kind of to hold on to, to go through these difficult times, actually. Were the movies that were inspiring you, and you said you're 10 when you left East Germany, mm-hmm. were you able to get those movies there? Or was that some like, when you left, were you suddenly like, oh my God, there's this whole world of movies that you could discover when starting at age 10? Um, my mother loved films and it was very hard to get hold of these movies in the East, but she, since she loved them, she always found a way to find those uh-huh. films. And we were watching uh, Western television illegally. Uh-huh. So uh, we, I got to see... Uh, so it wasn't like all, all no, news. I'm sorry, was, everything I know no, about but, East Germany, mm-hmm. I learned from the movie mm-hmm. The Lives of Others and I literally yes. know nothing else. It, like maybe there's a, a, to- a tone and a mood in the films pretty much to <laughs> relate it to my kind of uh, upbringing and childhood. But it's an interesting thing actually, how I got flooded with movies was a time because um, I think I can talk about this now, it's long enough ago, but one point to survive for my mother or my family in Poland was to pirate films, uh, pirate copy uh, films, uh, mm. uh, record them in Eastern television, Western television, sorry, and get them somewhere from the West, pirate them, dub them. She kind of would dub oh, wow. those movies. We had a little dubbing studio at home <laughs> and then they would be sold on the market. And uh, oh, wow. and uh, on some of those films, I helped actually transcribe the scripts because I didn't have a script, so I had to transcribe them as a like 12-year-old. I helped my mother oh. putting <laughs> on a typewriter, putting this st- stuff down, so the text down from, from the dialogues. But we, in a way, like as a as mm. a uh, as a kid, you're like yeah. studying these films kind mm-hmm. of more deeply than most people who just kind of casually watch yeah. them. Yeah, and this this was my first intense experience watching. And because the genres were so different, the market was so different. That these were hundreds of different of films that I kept watching for that. A uh, few art house films, but also the, like the the classical action cinema of America. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, most kind of uh, popular Hollywood movies. I got to see Scorsese, but also things like James Cameron's work because this yeah. was very popular action movies. So I got exposed to many many different films, many different genres. Oh, that's great. 
So at what point do you decide to take your love of movies and start building a, a career or a life or a study, a serious study of that? At the age of 16, 17, I, st I started to develop my interest to the point that I got a video camera and started doing short films. Mm -hmm. Pretty much myself directing, uh, shooting, <laughs> uh, like being a one-man band, having yeah. classmates as uh, actors and writing those scripts <laughs> and making those short films. And I wanted to take it a step further. And that's where I decided to study media design. And that was an interesting one because it, it was like a film course that doesn't go into one subject, but it's quite open. So you learn a little bit about um, lighting, cinematography, dramaturgy, theater, dramaturgy. So it's like an open film course, basically. And it has a very practical aspect to it as well. So uh, you go once in three weeks, you go uh, into a, a company and you work on projects as an editing assistant, as a camera assistant, different oh, cool. things. So it's this, this swapping between the classroom and being uh, in those companies. And I really, uh, I picked up, I, I think what I needed is getting the hands onto the gears, onto the equipment and working for technology and seeing how film sets work. And that's where I picked up the most. I think the theoretical base from this course was okay and was good, but actually I just was burning for having those professional film cameras or digital cameras in my hands and, and seeing how real film sets work out. Well, so. and back then that was half the reason to go to film school was to was yeah. to get your hands on gear as opposed yeah. to today where mm -hmm. probably you've mm -hmm. been, you know, film students that he probably had a DSLR when they were eight years yeah. old. Uh, so that was that school in, in Germany? It was in Germany, in Berlin, yeah. Mm -hmm. Media design course. And then uh, after that, basically, I, I actually, uh, in the last year of school, I was so fascinated by the practical side of it that I dropped out of the school. I wanted to be more on sets. Mm -hmm. So I kind of left the classes and uh, just uh, attended the, the exams. So I had the special system that I att <laughs> attended the exams. I would leave the classes. I would basically be on set because I was so fascinated. And as a little uh, uh, thank you for the school allowing me to do that, I would bring this high-end professional gear I would be working on into classrooms and give workshops. So I kind of oh, wow. gave a few workshops at this class with the stuff that the other students wouldn't be able to kind of get their, get their hands on. So I shared whatever I could take from those film sets back into the classroom and I did all my exams, uh, studied on them for the weekend. F colleagues would just write down the stuff so I could <laughs> do them myself. What, what kind of gear were you working with at that point? At that time, a lot of it was, um, uh, that was before HD came out. So mm -hmm. there was digital better cam, high-end PAL, PAL cameras that were used for TV series uh, yeah. with, a, with a filmic look, but still shot digitally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that also kind of all of a sudden, this exposure to this side of it, I learned all my kind of technical uh, background knowledge. Uh, those TV productions, they, they week on a weekly format, they run really fast. You have to be on top of your technical expertise. I learned that very quickly. But I found it quite limiting, the stories that were told, the repeat, repeating formats and scripts. Yeah. Because it, it wasn't exactly what I, what I, what I was hoping to, to do in, in, in like art or cinema. That's why I felt I wanted to be. So after three years with this course and being on those, film, on those sets, I, I left this production and I said to myself, I have to start from scratch because I want to get into films. So then mm. I made my first jump into learning other stuff. So I learned how to load film, uh, became a film camera assistant, worked a bit on that. In parallel, I deepened my knowledge into digital cinematography because that was a big thing that I kind of took from the series, working the series. And then uh, there was a point which was like the, I felt the inception of digital cinema where I felt now is the time that technology reaches a, a quality level where I think it can uh, compete 
with films shot on 35. About what year screen. is that? Like when That was in 2000. Yeah, oh, when wow. I, when I started working with the first prototype, literally the third shoot in Europe or maybe in the world, it was a prototype of the Sony F900 camera, which at that time was the first. It was a, Design was a news-gathering camera, but it was an HD camera. Yeah. And the step in resolution and quality was so huge. And I was just doing a few tests with this camera. And I worked on a, f on a few music videos with Wim Wenders at the time I met him mm -hmm. uh, as a technical advisor. I, be, I have worked with other cameras, not with this one. Uh, the whole menu structure was in Japanese. I really had to dive deep. It was crazy <laughs> to get it to work. But I saw, I saw that this has potential. And I thought to myself, but still a lot of the projects that use this camera don't look cinematic, don't look great, still looks like video. So I dive deeper into it and I thought, what can I change about this? And I realized that I have to be part of the whole process. If I want that this camera gets us these cinematic experiences on a big screen, yeah. I have to be part of the whole loop. Me means I have to go deeper into the technical side of the camera and I have to uh, learn how to color grade. Yeah. And um, because only if I, I'm part of a whole chain, from the camera to the picture, final image, then I, I'll be able to, to get us out of it. So I knew my, my, my journey towards cinematography is still in my mind, but I felt this could open my open doors for me to enter extremely interesting projects and productions, which otherwise I might not be able to reach. And I think my instinct was right. So I dived into this technology, tried to master it. And then the first opportunity came up um, where Alexander Sekudov, um, Russian director, had this incredible vision to shoot a, f a film in a single take. And um, everybody thought that that person is like, this is this idea is mad, <laughs> is not doable. And I just thought this is an amazing challenge. Yeah, because Rus it's Russian arc, right? Russian arc, yeah. yeah. And I just gave everything to, to make it possible. At that time, if you took the gear available at the time, it would have not been possible to make this film. But I thought we have to do something to make it possible. So I brought all the comp components together and I, was, I spent a year doing technical tests and finding the setup that allowed us to shoot this film. Because this isn't like a 1917 kind of a movie where it's many shots made to look like one shot. This is really just one shot, correct? That's correct. The whole movie. Yeah, this is basically in 92 minutes. Uh, this film tells 300 years of Russian history <laughs> in a single continuous, uh, uh, I think it's, it was 3.2 kilometer tracking shot, but in a single continuous take. Uh, oh, another one of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. And it was the first one to achieve that on this scale, on, yeah. this, on this level. And um, the, the fact that it was so hard, uh, the imagination to, to make this possible, uh, no, the, the fact that everybody thought, and actually everybody who had to do a film uh, uh, thought that this is uh, going to be impossible, made the challenge for me bigger and, mm -hmm. and made it so exciting for me to, to find a way to do this, to find... The first uh, problem we had, for example, is that there was no tape long enough to recording this. So I've, we found a company and the owner of the company became a very close friend of mine afterwards <laughs> who designed the first hard disk recorder that could sh fill, uh, record uncompressed um, HD uh, images. So it was like capturing right off the sensor and digitizing it? More Ex or less? Or? Yeah, we just took we took, took the HDSDI output from the camera, the mm -hmm. digital output, and went into the hard disk recorder that he had. and. This became a port. It was actually originally a server, uh -huh. like a pretty immobile setup. But we he made it uh, portable and small enough to be able to carry it in a backpack. So we had <laughs> one person with this hardest decoder in a backpack, following cabled up, following following the static wow. operator. And then we had exactly 90 minutes. We had to get uh, state of the art battery technology in order to run this server for 90 minutes. And 
And that's just one obstacle there. There's a million other. Russian arc is this whole, there's a thousand stories I could tell that we had to overcome to make mm. this happen. That was just the first step to get the technical part together. Then there were lots of rehearsals, but we never were able to rehearse in the Hermitage. The film was shot in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, which uh, was literally just shot down for 48 hours for us shooting the film. And so not even, I think it was 36 hours. So we only had the whole night to light it up. And then we had one day to shoot it. And that really? was it. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> really? The whole budget and all it's the like energy. It's like a military of, operation to get, yeah. bust in there and get all that stuff set up like that. Exactly. You have 2,000 actors and extras <sighs> to be coordinated. And all of that had to, had to come together on one day. We could never rehearse the whole thing because we didn't own the location. We, we didn't have those people. We didn't have them in costumes. So all of it... Uh, was this 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 Olympic journey of everybody having perf to perform two hundred percent perfectly? If one person does a small mistake, there's no film. Oh my god! Yeah. And and how many takes were you able to take? It's the whole movie. Were you able to do it more than once? Yeah. Uh, well, the director made the decision that there's either going to be one take movie or no movie because we could have also just said we cut it up if we don't manage. Yeah. But the director said that that's not going to happen. So we had to make it in one take. Um, but I mean, we like three did, times did, interrupted. The first three takes interrupted somewhere around minute seven, between seven and ten. Well, that's what you want. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> And then you I don't also, want to get to 75 minutes and then someone's like, I forgot my line. Oops, start over. But then we knew that this is the last chance we can go. This is the last time we can get a continuous take uh, uh. because we would run out of daylight. So basically, we already w were an hour late with this call to make the last take. So the last one had to go through. And, you know, sometimes magic comes together when all everybody knows the impossible is coming out to this one moment. It felt like this incredible inception moment that everybody then performed to this level that miraculously we made the impossible happen. And we went through and had this film done in one take. So it sounds like you wore a lot of hats on that project. Yeah, lots of hats. Uh, I was, um, so Steadicam operator Hilmar Bittner, who also also was a DOP on this mm -hmm. film, but it, sh it quickly showed that he, he couldn't handle it all alone, basically, the whole project. So there needed to be other people that he shares the workload with. So while shooting it, he was mostly being the Steadicam operator. I took over the whole communication. It was a group of me, the director, focus puller, and a translator walking through the space as a little journey through that film, like a little bubble doing a time journey because everything around us was so real. So, and I took over both the communication with everything else that's happening in terms of all the technical stuff, lighting and things. Yeah. And as he focused on the shot, and the thing is, I could also re react very fast because the director spoke Russian and the DP didn't speak Russian, so th that had to be translated, whatever the director said. So I sometimes could react very quickly because I understood the director on this language. Wow. And then there was uh, Bernd Fischer, a brilliant DOP, who actually initiated this project. He brought it uh, actually to us. He worked with Sekulov before. And he was uh, like a, uh, he, he ended up a very important, being a very, very important creative consultant on this project who, for example, during the recording of the film, I had to pull the iris. So I had to adjust exposure because cameras at this time didn't have the latitude to just kind of go through yeah. extreme contrast. So I was constantly pulling the exposure, uh, the iris of the camera. And he would uh, be one room ahead because I couldn't remember 100 marks. He would be run, one room ahead walking, giving me actual readings, exposure readings, live. And I, while I was doing my job, I remembered the five stops from the next room. And I kind of, he said, okay, by the window, it's a T11 under the balloon. Oh my God. So I had to constantly 
do my job and record in my mind what what's happening in the next room. Plus the whole communication of things that weren't going wrong. So I would get a radio call saying that the balloon lights and the da dance in the hall room, ballroom uh, were breaking down. And what to do? Do we break the shot or do we keep going? And I made the call to Uh, bring the cherry pickers and why we were on the journey to get those balloon light, lights fixed because we had no chance to do another take. But I was in charge for this. I didn't tell anybody because they would have panicked. Like uh -huh. the static operator <laughs> would have panicked. So I, could, I took it to myself and said, okay, get it fixed. And literally the minute, two minutes before we arrived, they were out with the cherry pickers. Otherwise, they would have been like in shot. Oh, so a lot of pressure. I didn't sleep for three days before we Seriously. got to do this film. And that is a pressure cooker. Like nothing's like that. <clears throat> That's like, like that. it's like the opening ceremony of the Olympics level pressure to, to pull everything off like that. But for 90 <clears throat> straight minutes. Yeah, that was incredible. And um, there's one little uh, uh, story um, that I'd like to tell about this whole experience. So the director demanded all of us, the close camera crew, would wear costumes. Uh, so in case we get into the shot, into mm -hmm. shot, we would be kind of disguised and not yeah. be seen as extras. So I had to wear the costume of a French aristocrat, and <laughs> um, so I was dressed up and doing my my job. And we had a little uh, rehearsal of how to move in case we get into shot. Um, <laughs> and so I was walking through there, and at some point you just literally forget the fact. I, this was the project where I really forgot that I was w doing their job. I was doing a film because everything you wear in costume, everything around you is real. There's yeah. a thousand actors and extras doing their, their thing. There's no point where you, see, you don't see equipment. You're just, you're in the middle of a time journey. So I really had to keep convincing myself or focusing on the job I had to do because it was, I felt like Alice in Wonderland just walking through the space and diving into it, being on this time travel Man. where everything around me was, was real. And... Now I want to see Russian Ark. I, I saw Russian Ark when it came out, but yeah. I haven't seen it since. Yeah, and actually to finish the story, the, the one person who came up with the idea, everybody of, oh, I should be costumed, the director, when we asked him why doesn't he costume us, he would never end up in shot. It's his film. He wouldn't ruin his shot, right? And mm. he was he is actually the one who um, ended up in shot and we were to paint out and reframe out. He was the one who ended up in shot and he didn't wear costumes. So <laughs> that was a problem. How, no, so back then, how would you go about painting something out? That like... Today, you just go in After Effects and tweak it. In fact, I was watching a thing about some movie recently where there was crew in the shot, in a shot in the mall, and you could see, mm. like, the crew, and they just, like, painted shopping bags on all of them and, and, yeah. and, and moved on with their lives. But uh, back then, you couldn't just do that. Well, we could. The thing is, I thought that the hardest thing was done by shooting the film, but post-production was still laying ahead of us. We had to paint out so many things really? at the time. We had lamps and shots sometimes and things. We had to reframe, restabilize some parts. Uh, this film became, in post-production, became a continuous VFX shots. If you would look at the VFX events we had there, there would be more VFX events than, than in the same time release Star Wars movie. <laughs> Because so many things had to be fixed. So, like, what? Uh, not to, I know we we, we mm. try not to get too technical yeah. here, but like, what programs were you using to do? The we had a we had a state of the art silicon graphics at that time oh. machine with brand new ones, the same machines that that would be used for Star Wars for making some stuff, like the VFX computer, yeah, massive brand new machine, and we had three artists working in three shifts because it was the only machine that was able to play this back and work on it. So you couldn't work on smaller workstations. There was one computer, <laughs> one supercomputer, and three guys in three shifts working the way through and literally like every second frame in this film is somehow touched something is retimed or done to it and to do this in a continuous take is a big challenge and then my next challenge came up 
at that time I was playing a little bit with color correction, but I wasn't at a point with the eye. I wasn't at a point to do feature films. And the director, uh, being a very special artist, enjoyed the collaboration with me so much that he's asked me if I could color grade the film. So after we've shot the first single take film in history, and we got this done, he asked me to do this color grading. So I worked at this company. And they flew in two technicians to give me a training on a Da Vinci, mm-hmm. da, da, da Vinci 2K. And I did a short film and then I worked on Russian Ark as a colorist. So wow. this was my big... And that's how you ended up, because yeah. c- coloring is a lot, of, a lot of what you've done. You've done a lot yeah. of coloring over After this one, I stayed on board of both because I realized the film, if you watch Russian Ark, um, what it is, the image quality and also... The, the artistic images, it's it's a lot of me behind there because I yeah. set up the camera f- t- uh, to begin with, I exposed it, and I uh, sat with a director for one and a half months and uh, followed his idea. And actually, uh, Sukurov gave me this artistic touch. This was, for me, the one thing that I was seeking, and he was the, the, the extreme of that because he, at that time, already as accomplished Russian filmmaker, mm-hmm. he was... That was actually this was my my intellectual film school working with him then because he came back we sat for two months together in the grading and he would show me reprints of classical painters and and lock every scene down to a certain look oh, and he wow. would have uh, references of Rembrandt for certain scenes and this was very abstract for me because sometimes the image itself that I had had very little to do with the reference images in terms of color so I had to really recreate lots of things I had to manipulate those images to a huge level and the, I would say the, the 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 achievement of doing the DI with the existing technology at the time the grading color grading mm-hmm. is nearly as big as shooting the film in one shot because never had done this this was at the beginning of digital intermediate that was just a year yeah. after one of the first after after oh, brother Arthur was yeah. and I, I called up those people I called oh, really? the, the colorist and everybody told me it's not possible Every again the thing everybody who knew how Da Vinci works said it's not possible because you have to work with millions of not millions but hundreds of transitions you have no way to cut from scene. these things are built to, to work with cuts yeah. even today with edits so this film despite it was one single shot had 30,000 animated transitions <sighs> which I had to do so oh you can <laughs> you can watch a film basically with just the layers that I created for the DI of the film and it's a whole cartoon of masks and windows flying around um, just to create this look of the film um, so it was like 20, 30,000 normally if uh, you have a cut with at that time you have a film with let's say art house film 700 edits 800 edits you might end up with 3,000 uh, different events yeah, and this one had twenty five thousand. And Da Vinci, I mean, like Da Vinci is awesome, and people are still using it today. But it's come mm. a long way. Yes. In, in terms of just, it's it, not the same machine yeah. anymore. It's it was a completely different thing. It was a huge. It was a huge box, and yeah. and yeah, it's it's almost weird to think of a time before yeah. digital intermediates. Although yeah. I feel like anything that was finished for television up until yeah. then, like a lot of music videos mm. and TV shows, they would do sort of. It wasn't the same thing, mm. but they would do a color grade sort mm-hmm. of. But you're doing kind of a pioneering thing at the time that yeah. now is is kind of the mm-hmm. in in several ways like mm-hmm. in terms of like now all the cameras just have an onboard mm-hmm. hard drive that records mm-hmm. everything or a solid state whatever and mm-hmm. and uh you know di is like mm-hmm. a thing that everyone has to do now everyone mm-hmm. everyone has to go through a grade it's not even called a di most of the time and i was at the initiation of it there that's crazy and and the interesting thing oh, the, the the wonderful thing that the, how it opened the world for me was up until that like 
um, art house cinema uh, was an abstract thing for me. I watched it, but I didn't know how to get in touch with this. And I used to read the American Cinematographer magazine mm -hmm. since I was 17. This was my kind of Bible of information. And then after we did this film, all of a sudden I had this six-page interview in the American Cinematographer And this film went to Cannes, and all of a sudden, I was asked how I achieved things, and I felt like I was I was 28 <laughs> at the time, oh, just man. at my very beginning. But that kind of initiated something with me, and this was the kind of beginning of my journey then onwards. And I thought this this is just the beginning. This film it became the first digital projection in Cannes, mm -hmm. and this was shown both in film 35 and digitally. And there was lots of panels where people started discussing digital cameras and things, and I was part of that. And then uh, my next big step uh, actually was meeting Anthony Dodd-Mantle. So let's go into a little bit more detail about Anthony Dodd-Mantle because uh, I, I always believe that Anthony Dodd-Mantle is one of our uh, most interesting experimenters in, in the cinematography world. Like a, a, a camera can't come out fast enough before he'll be shooting, mm -hmm. uh, shooting something fascinating with mm -hmm. it. I remember he shot Slumdog Millionaire on the mm -hmm. SI2K. Mm. He did The Celebration, which I think is still the mm -hmm. best of all the dogma films that were ever made. You know, he's, just, mm -hmm. he's such an amazing cinematographer. So, so he, he met with you about working on a commercial. Yeah, uh, so I had this produ producer friend who uh, was producing a commercial, a bigger commercial for Volkswagen, mm -hmm. which has had this documentary aspect to it, and it was supposed to be screened in a 70mm cinema. So after I've done Russian Ark, um, mm -hmm. my friend obviously knew that I would be the perfect person to bring uh, a digital format onto onto 70mm film, and he introduced me to Anthony, and Anthony, also having seen Russian Ark, was curious and very open-minded, and, uh, and that was the beginning of a great, amazing work relationship with him. Uh, so we did this commercial together, and then afterwards, um, his next feature film, which was Dear Wendy, Dear Wendy with Thomas Winterberg, he um, took me along into the project, um, having seen my skills and bringing uh, new technology on a certain yeah. level, and also having this uh, creative and artistic perspective to it. I think that fascinated him, and I learned so many things, basically, from him be because I... I brought all this amazing technology to our projects where he was inspiring me creatively. I spent altogether years with him on, on, on 14 films, I think. Oh, I've wow. I've, I've spent, and, and every single film was a new technological challenge, but also always uh, uh, the attempt to achieve a look and a tell a story visually how it hasn't been done before. So the first film, The Wendy, Uh, Anthony had lots of Anthony and Thomas Winterberg had lots of references. I remember by by Edward Curtis, the uh, famous uh, photographer who shot uh, photographed uh, portraits of Native Americans, mm -hmm. black and white square format, so beautiful texture and very this amazing softness to those images, which had obviously something very filmic and something where digital cameras are very very far away from, especially at the time. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what, what year was Dear Wendy? Was that like 2003? Yeah, 2004-ish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, infancy of digital cameras at the time. Most of digital cameras, uh, HD cameras, were actually reused news gathering cameras just used for documentary and for they were ergonomically quite terrible. And their look based out of the camera, how you get it, the, the image out of it. Is, has a very, very unappealing digital look. It was like a two-third inch <clears throat> sensor on most of those, and they were using yeah. news l lenses mm -hmm. for news cameras, even. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, basically, um, with this guidance from Anthony, I, we try to find two components, always two things. What is the look that we want to achieve, A, and B, ergonomically, because mm -hmm. the idea was to have this film very free, handheld style operating. We, ne we needed a small camera. And again, all those cameras were not ergonomical at the time. They were big beasts and too yeah. heavy. And um, 
I just came across the fact that Sony built a special version of a camera where you could detach a sensor, a little bit like you can do with a Sony Venice right now. Also, the Alexa had this mini detachable X and mini. So nowadays, you have lots of options uh, where, where cameras, uh, Sony does it with the Venice, and uh, Ari has done as much earlier with Alexa M. But there was one already in 2003 where uh, I think it was made for doing all the motion control uh, uh, setups that were needed for Star Wars for the for the second reboot of Star Wars for all the model shots. So they've mm-hmm. Sony has built a camera version where you could detach a sensor, but it was just meant as a technical device. It was again ergonomically not very good. Um, <laughs> so we spent a lot of time uh, uh, together with uh, with a camera designer and uh, a silicon operator Jakob Field to make this little box, which was not usable but small. <laughs> into something that becomes very ergonomic and uh, it was then suspended from a small mini easy turtle rig and Anthony shot the whole film pretty much handheld on this very small for for, for its times very very small camera I think yeah. the size of Alexa Mini it was and at the time was unheard of and I sat connected to that camera in a van with a class one monitor and I pre-graded the whole film so I had the control color control of this uh, for the camera and could actually adjust all primary color balances and, and 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 detailing lots of parameters of the camera to already in the first layer because there was no logarithmic image at the time you didn't have the option to to wow. record a soft um uh, a contrast curve a gamma curve that allows you lots of uh, color correction it was all heavily compressed recording so you needed to get to this image so you were like um, you were like the first dit yeah in a way before it even had a name kind of <laughs> And you were baking the look into the yes, footage, so there's was, like, yeah. there's no way to. I mean, I'm sure you could grade yeah. it further, but you mm. couldn't go back to the raw image coming off the sensor. There was no raw image. That no. was what you had yeah. done. Yeah, basically pre-grading in camera. But because I did the final DI and I spent so much time with Anthony talking about the look of the film, I kind of knew what I had to do. So I then, late after we finished shooting, I also did the final grading and supervised the film prints. So mm-hmm. basically, from the inception of the first test shoot where we decide which lenses we're using up until fine-tuning the film print because at that time we were still didn't have digital projections fil- uh, we were recording films back to 35 yeah this was i was part of this whole process chain and i found it so fascinating because that's how you create this world and the look of a film and i stayed in exactly this chain with anthony for many many films after and we every film again reinvented the, the, the whole process and if you just jump a couple of years forward you'll have a next one Slumdog Millionaire where yeah. um, 2007 Anthony likes to approach me with impossible challenges um, in 2007 he said he needs a camera the size of a cigarette box or slightly bigger a very small camera and uh, so you can shoot those scenes with the kids in the slums. Um, production at that time was thinking to use DV cameras, as they did on 28 Days Later. And obviously, I knew immediately, it's, visually, it's going to be a bad idea. Were you on 28 Days Later? No, so? I wasn't. Oh, okay. Mm. So, and that was literally like 12 weeks before the shoot, so there's very little time to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I teamed up then with this incredible little rental house and inventive house uh, called Pillar Film in Germany, who um, actually came from film, made the transition to, to digital, and we had a perfect partnership. They were willing to do anything to bring resources, to build rigs and stuff, buy cameras and tools, 
and I was supervising the whole process because I knew everything about digital cinematography. So within four weeks, we had a system baked together. We found an American uh, camera called SI2K, which wasn't ready for any shoot, for not for what we needed. And I spent weeks to redesign the thing, make it more ergonomic and create a camera that's actually usable for a film of the scale. I don't think that camera was even ready two years after you guys used it. Um, like I, I was working on a project where we looked into using that mm -hmm. camera and the DP was like, there's just no way mm -hmm. like this camera is, is not a practical solution for this. And I'm like, but Slumdog Millionaire. And they yeah. were like, nope, yeah. no way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because correct me if I'm wrong, like you had to record directly to like a laptop that would overheat. Mm -hmm. So you had to like yeah. keep it in a in a in like a thing of dry ice. Right. Yes. It was all madness. It was the craziest uh, thing ever because finally once once I got all the pieces together of how to record this image from the camera exactly in a MacBook Pro that was protected by a suitcase uh, inside a suitcase and we had a Chinese car navigation display attached to it which we reprogrammed so you can control the camera. Um, <laughs> We could do onset grading with this. That is we, crazy. You know, we're talking about 2007. You have yeah. a little laptop. You can create LUTs. The LUTs are automatically saved to the folders. So they will uh, be used for the transcoding, the Evit. And that's all in 2007. So, But that camera would give you some kind of a raw signal so the LUTs aren't baked yeah. in, correct? No, it's all, yeah, exactly. It's a raw recording, a yeah. compressed raw image we recorded. That was like 2K. a new thing that that camera yeah. did that nothing had done before yeah. then. Yeah. And the last thing I've unfortunately forgotten in the whole process uh, is how hot it is in India. So I had everything ready to go and it worked. And the week before the shoot, I realized the temperatures in India are 20 degrees higher <laughs> than in Germany. So I went into a sauna with a thing. I spent with a rental house owner, a uh, camera uh -huh. house owner, and a <laughs> setup. I spent three hours in the sauna uh -huh. testing at Indian heat temperatures. And I figured out that the whole thing I've been building for six weeks doesn't work. Oh, no. Nightmare. So then I came up and I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm actually just a cinematographer who wants to be creative with some technical knowledge. I'm not an expert, hyper expert, all these things. It's just things that I learned on the way. What is it's that a, feeling when you're <laughs> in the middle of that though? And it's yeah. like, when did I become the, the, the exactly. senior technologist yeah. of this and like also have to figure out all these engineering mm -hmm. challenges? And I just, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I just did this because I wanted to To, I felt I was part of, with Anthony, I felt like I was part of history, part of a journey where we take digital technology to something else. And uh, I felt so inspired by him that I always wanted to give him the best tool. Mm -hmm. And then in return, uh, he would then on set uh, let me operate B camera and we would work together either as a camera operator or I would be a second DP. So I had this holistic experience kind of <laughs> as a thing. But I've designed this beast of a camera which actually wasn't really working to the point that it should. So. And the last thing I came up with was just a quick solution to use dry ice to cool the computer down to the level that it would work. And then I called the production up and said, every day in a shoot, we need, I made calculations that we need eight kilos of dry ice per day because it melts over the day. That's what we need per day. And they just thought that I'm mad. <laughs> It's coming like, with a camera. It doesn't like usually uh, mm. go in the camera. Like, you know, the camera car doesn't, uh, yeah. camera truck doesn't usually have dry ice. Yeah. That's, that's awesome, though. But then, I mean, what Anthony did, and I, I knew he's going to do it. I think Anthony's one of the best camera operators in the world. He tells a story in single takes. I've seen so much mm -hmm. uh, of his ingenious operating work. You know, he can cap capture a whole scene without a cut in a single shot just by knowing, understanding the dramatic of a scene. He's brilliant like this. And um, he then used and embraced this. And they, Danny Ball and Anthony were so excited when they had the cameras yeah. that they, in the end, decided to 
let the 35mm camera stand around and we shot 80% of the film on this camera. And originally it was only planned for a few sequences. So then the whole film, 80% of the film became this digital camera. A lot of dry ice. Mm-hmm. Love dry ice. Whoever sells dry ice in <laughs> India was happy that you worked yeah. on this. Am I, am I right or wrong? Did that win Best Cinematography? Yeah, it became the first film to win Best Cinematography, ASC Award and BAFTA. Yeah. And it became the first film to be shot digitally. Yeah, it was the first digital film that won. And I remember that was, I feel like that was the tipping point Mm -hmm. where we were like, okay, well, you know, it's not that film is dead, but Mm -hmm. it's that digital is just Jim Dandy to to compete with film now. Yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously that, that movie is amazing. Now this whole time that you're working with uh, Anthony Dodd Mantle, Mm. are you shooting your own stuff as well? Meanwhile, Uh, (laughs) you're, you're sort of. Mm. not apprenticing but you're sort of yeah. growing part as as part yeah. of his team mm-hmm. and and this kind of goes back to one of the first things you said about you know how mm-hmm. your interest was like how do you pack all this emotion into a shot mm-hmm. now you're working with like one of the best people on earth to do that yeah so i, I think it was literally like i i learned a lot from the first till our 10th film i absorbed a lot of his personality mm-hmm. and the things he was doing and uh, that was also a point where I get a little less interested in the technology side of it. It also got a little bit easier, one yeah. could say. But still, I mean, there were still a few milestones. We did Straight After, we did um, Antichrist, yeah. which was the first time uh, a Red One camera being used for an art house feature, International One. Oh, and, was it really? Mm, I think, yeah, it was one of the early, very early ones. And we had, yeah, first time I think a Phantom being used outside the commercial world just for capturing the opening sequences. So they were like, and, and I I think uh, for my work as a colorist, I did this one together with Dirk Meyer, who brought the hardest record on Russian Ark. Uh-huh. He became a colorist meanwhile, so we had we were the both of us. In terms of my work as a colorist, I think this is my artistic masterpiece. I think it's the last Antichrist. film, Antichrist. Yeah. If if uh, if anything, the, the the I think if I had to pick one film that kind of puts my experience of having graded 50 films into one result, then Antichrist would be the one. Like, wow. I actually, believe it or not, yeah. saw that movie twice in the theater. I went and yeah. saw it with a friend and then I was like, my wife is going to mm. love this movie. And yeah. we went back and saw it again. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, just an amazing, uh, mm-hmm. go- gorgeous film. You know, a great part of that was was your work. Now, did you consciously decide that you were going to to stop working with Anthony uh, Dodd Mantle or uh, and 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 start branching out into your own work, or was there like a, a specific reason that you stopped working together? Um, see, I thought that I could do both, mm-hmm. um, do a few short films in between and maybe starting to do my own film and go back to Anthony. But it's very, very hard because the films that Anthony kept do- doing became bigger and, and larger and yeah. and and very involving and very, very technically also very, very big and complicated. After this one, we did uh, Dread 3D together, which was uh, <laughs> our first I love that 3D. movie. That's such yeah. a great movie. I forgot that he shot that. Yeah. It's wonderful. I saw that in 3D in the mm-hmm. theater. This was kind of one of the biggest technical challenges. Yeah. Uh, in terms of scale that I had to go through uh, and put put through, it was also one of the early really shot 3D films. We had a few people from Avatar working with and us. And you're shooting this. in stereo. It's not a post-conversion. Yes, we're right? shooting in stereo, which made it incredibly complicated. And it also was at the inf- infancy of stereography. So basically, you were very much dependent on your lead stereographer. The equipment was not really uh, uh, working that well yet. You worked very slow. Lots of cameras involved, lots of problems. So we, we were one of the first ones to actually get a, a high-speed rig made for all the slow-mo sequences there. That was also something that I was yeah. deeply involved in doing 3D high-speed 
uh, cinematography with two phantom cameras, which wasn't done, I think, at, at that point yet. And plus a lot of, it's a very, it's a very technically, it was very demanding, this film. It was a long time. I worked on this for seven, eight months, I think. Oh, wow. Uh, and 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 it became for me less engaging creatively because the technical side was so complex and so big that I couldn't just do B camera there on this one. Yeah. So I was kind of uh, I was moving away a little bit. The smaller films we did before, I was more involved into doing cinematography, and this one just became such a complex beast. And Anthony had so many things uh, under his head that I realized, okay, if Anthony goes this way, and also technology in some way becoming less prone to to uh, becoming bec you know the cameras get bigger latitudes so the look is becoming more and more a grading thing uh, than it was before so decisions on set don't like necessarily completely uh, lock down the look of your film you have much mm -hmm. more freedom uh, afterwards so i found this this became less and less interesting for me so this this and a bit of rush that uh, I, I helped uh, Anthony set up a few uh, camera setups there, but I didn't really work on this. Became then my departure from our collaboration. It was a sad time because I missed, we were family, literally. Yeah. His gaffer, me and him, we traveled the world. We did 127 hours together as well. Great movie. So like for six years, I probably saw him more often than his <laughs> own kids and family. Um, but then I knew if I want to depart, it's now. I need to do my own thing i want to go back to do cinematography as a main dop and see actually uh, how i can utilize all these things i've seen and learned and i imagine that he was probably really happy for you you know to to be kind of <laughs> stepping off in that direction it's definitely but it's you know it's this this mentor student kind of thing uh, it mm -hmm. sometimes gets to a point where where um he was very happy about me leaving but also uh, there wasn't an easy replacement for me, mm -hmm. you know. But, uh, I think we've grown so closely together that I think he missed me quite a lot on the next uh, films he's done, and uh, it was it was a bit of a slow departure on on new projects and new things. Mm -hmm. um, and same with me. I mean, all of a sudden I stood there on my first film sets and in uh, um, the front storm of communication with producers, yeah. and I realized a lot of it is actually uh, um, communication diplomacy and technicalities uh, before you even get to the point of creatively shooting a film, which I wasn't quite aware of how much it can actually be. The whole circus around the things that you have to manage and organize so you can be creative on set and, and have uh, mm. shoot your film. Do you grade your own stuff mostly? Do you like are you still hands on with the image all the way through the way that you were before? Um, I'm I'm yeah, <clears throat> I'm pretty much hands-on, but I don't, I work in collaboration with colorists now. So basically, since I started to shoot my films, I I did never think it's a great idea to grade your own films as a DOP, as mm -hmm. a director, shouldn't edit his own movies, I think. Um, uh, because there is this uh, this process with the person, the colorist. First of all, the colorist has lots of technical stuff to deal with. And I think it's, it's much easier as a cinematographer to keep the larger perspective of the film. So I really enjoy giving this part away to colorists, but have a very precise thought and idea, obviously, about the design and the look of the films I'm, I'm shooting myself. I mean, I imagine that, you know, probably for a colorist, you're going to be as demand, not demanding, but you're going to have as specific an idea as probably a lot of DPs because you spent, I think you might be one yeah. of the first people we've ever interviewed who's done as much grading as you've done. So how does it feel to you to kind of take your hands off the steering wheel and let somebody else do that? It's actually quite, it feels very liberating in a mm -hmm. way because uh, um, I feel 
I can articulate very well how my film is supposed to look. And I think then if, if it goes to another set of creative hands in this togetherness, that's how I experienced from my perspective as a colorist together with Anthony. I felt like in this process together, you, re, you go much further and deeper than if you just precisely design the, the, the site, how it's going to be, and you kind of orchestrate it onto that level. So I, I like this collaboration. And I like uh, also to be inspired and get kind of feedbacks and change little things. So my colorist sometimes has also a little bit of freedom to explore. It's it's like an exploring journey. Mm-hmm. Like you talk with your director about the visual style of the film. That is a journey together. And and then later with the gaffer, the same process. So I like to ge- get input and inspirations from the people uh, who are working with it. I, I try not to... Keep treat them just as technicians I try to kind of treat them as part of creative team because that's what I was in all the films I worked on before and I really believe in in empowering your crew to a certain degree to um, maybe give you feedback and inspiration so um, before I keep you here for the entire, you know, 20, mm-hmm. 24 straight hours, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit about uh, Guns Akimbo, <coughs> because that that was sort of the inciting incident that that had us, uh, you know, uh, reach out to you in the first mm-hmm. place. Tell me a little bit about how that came about. That movie has like such an amazing look. And I don't even know that I would have the ability to describe that look if that's what I wanted. How did how did the look of that movie evolve? Because it is so unique and 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 so uh rich and colorful and and everything about that movie feels completely designed even the loose handheld moments of that still feel like very very designed Ganza Kimbo was one of those projects where when i read the script i was literally experiencing a flood of images ideas and thoughts uh, it really kind of uh, because it had so many references the director jason lee harden had referenced a lot of uh, the 80s action movies uh, with that, I knew partly of that because it was part of his idea and lookbook. Book, but reading the script and seeing all those incredibly dynamic action sequences, I literally felt like this will become a little bit of a toy box for me to do a film that references all the great pieces, and not only one film, but actually goes back to a big, large series of films that I enjoyed watching in the 80s and 90s, and even modern cinema. And also because it has a strong graphic novel aspect to it, I pretty much immediately also had ideas about the lighting scheme, how I want the schism underworld to look like. Mm-hmm. So literally this, this script really spoke in images to me. And uh, one more thing which I felt immediately was when I knew that Daniel Radcliffe was playing Miles, the lead character, how immersive I want to tell this experience through him. And that led to, for me, to, to many, many thoughts really uh, pretty soon, pretty much soon on that I wanted to have this camera really entering his pr- privacy space, being really, really close to him and finding my own visual language and my own lenses for him, for this character. So yeah. the audience is really taken through this journey in a very kind of immersive experience. So this was one of the scripts which immediately flashed and sparked many ideas and thoughts. I mean, I can imagine. So for, for our <laughs> listeners who haven't seen Guns Akimbo, it is an extremely violent, <laughs> it is so violent uh, movie uh, in which Daniel Radcliffe plays a character who's who's messing with some people online who are running basically a game where people are forced to murder each other and people follow them on their on their phones and on their you know on their tablets and after he messes with them they break into his house and basically surgically implant guns on both of his hands so he can't take them off and then he has to kind of he's pitted against the most deadly person who's ever played the game and they have to fight and it's uh 
it's it's quite a ride from the from really the first frame it, it kind of never lets you go now when you say that you you kind of came up with ideas for like lenses that were specifically for him can you can you walk me through the creative process mm-hmm. like what what, what yeah. were the what are mm-hmm. those lenses and mm-hmm. why yeah i mean generally the creative process to find a look for the film was a triangle between a production designer nick bassett the director obviously and yeah. me and we creators uh, i mean we started uh, this process actually early on i was in berlin they were in new zealand so mm-hmm. we were far away and we just kept like bouncing thoughts ideas video clips films stills from from many many places together and yeah. created this mood board which was then put together by um by the production designer which we all kind of agreed on as a base of it and it was like the most um like we, we were, i was looking at one kawaii films to get a certain color tone and i can I, totally this film, see that <laughs> yeah so so um um there's there's so many uh, different inspirations for me in there and the one thing i knew immediately is that this film um has to be brave and over the top uh, and actually the most extreme thing I've ever done I, uh, in terms of camera movement and everything. Yeah. Camera movement was one very, very important thing for me. And because I knew how small and lightweight and a- agile I wanted to be, and at the same time I wanted to be immersive, which meant I wanted to shoot large format. And they wanted to have the equivalent of a large format camera. And there were at the time when we, we were shooting the film, there were very few lim- options, actually only one camera out there, which could have been used for shooting large format and being as small as it needed to be. Mm-hmm. And that was the uh, Red Monster 8K. Uh, so again, for this thing, the ergonomics were important, so I got this camera. And then I, I, set, I, set, I, I worked quite intensely with my camera operator, Benjamin Traplin, who I've worked with for my last eight films, to come up with new rigs and ideas of how we could ha- keep this immersiveness so Daniel can move through space and the camera can keep following him. And he has this incredible Steadicam rig. Uh, it's called uh, MK5 Omega, which is a Steadicam with a rotating head on top of it. Oh, wow. It's like a gimbal thing. And they actually, uh, uh, you have the possibility of a jib arm on a Steadicam. You can move. It's a little bit like a Trinity, just different. can move the camera uh, from the feet up to the faces and you can do amazing moves that a Steadicam normally can never do. And this had one special new feature, which we used a lot, was it could connect to the iPhone and you could actually spin the camera while moving the telephone, while moving the iPhone. What? Really? So if you remember the scene when Miles wakes up with yeah. his guns attached to his hands, yeah. the camera is floating for the room from the window, spinning upside down, following from the room. I would literally kind of walk next to the static operator, Benjamin, and have the, the phone in my hands and kind of spin the camera uh, according to the, the emotional situation of Daniel Radcliffe and made... Uh, we made this together. So like it's, it's a three-minute one-shot. They've intercut it. They didn't yeah. keep it together. My idea was it to keep it as one shot. But really this immersive experience of him waking up and, and, and I wanted the audience to literally feel nauseous, same <laughs> nauseous as him. Uh, that's why we did this uh, special setup. Well, and let me ask you too, because that movie is like jam-packed with action and it's jam-packed with everything, but it's also really funny. How would you typify your approach to keeping the comedy alive in something that's also kind of over the top violent? How do you balance the, those two flavors that are both very, very strong and sometimes contrasting? I think, I mean, here you have to trust your director and you have to trust your actors that this on a performance level comes across as funny. And I then obviously can enhance it by kind of being 
like extreme with my lens choices. So there's a lot of beats which might have not been funny if I didn't stick a 16, 15 millimeter nearly fisheye lens touching the nose of Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> so basically, um, you know, I went against the genre of action movies, which are normally shot long lens, yeah. very long lens. Uh, I went very wide, as wide as sometimes a favorite has been shot, the film, the favorite. Uh -huh. But I didn't want the audience to see, oh, it's a wide angle lens. I didn't want the audience to feel it. So that's why I used this large format. So you basically have, uh, you can, you lose longer lenses for a wide shot, kind of wider setup because the sense of the camera is bigger. Um, and you don't feel that is wide. I mean, the same if you watch Revenant, it doesn't feel that super wide shot because of this large sense of a camera. So this is one thing. Obviously, lighting helps it a lot. I t try to there as well be very extreme. So as a lot of the film has this kind of high key look a little bit, you know, a little bit inspired by Deadpool, just very simple lighting setups. And the moment we go into the underworld, I wanted to be really brave. I wanted to have this Tarantino-esque uh, extreme lighting setups using graphic novel colors. I, yeah. I watched a lot of neo-noir and cyberpunk things uh, just to get this inspiration. When I think about watching it, I mm. think about that movie in colors. Like yeah. I remember the colors of it. Yeah, yeah. And I thought it's it's this film is all about exaggeration. If any of the aspects would have been more normal, if the lens choice would have been more normal, or my lighting less extreme, I think then the violence also would have been harder to bear or to see. I think you know the fact that everything is so over the top, it it kind of passes through without damaging people. <laughs> yeah, watching it in a way. Well, it doesn't feel. It, it, I guess. I guess. I, if I'm following what you're saying, mm. it makes it it makes it yeah. feel a little bit less real. It makes it feel yeah. like. More, yeah. more like art and less like a documentary yeah. about people murdering each other. That was so important for me to have this heightened reality so actually people don't, f the, the people feel a little bit detached to it. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a, in a way a mm -hmm. comment on our online culture anyway. So it's sort of criticizing it in a way. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So, uh, where are you now? Like, what what are your next? What's your next big move as as a DP? Do you have a project that you're already uh, that you've already that, you're, that you're working on now? Yeah, I'm reading uh, quite a few scripts right now. Mm -hmm. I have lots of offers. One could be a World War Two uh, drama TV series. Um, another one uh, is a 1980s um, heist movie set in nice. England. So I have to make quite a few decisions. But did, I, did Guns Akimbo open up those kinds of doors for you? I think so. I think maybe it's my whole journey because people mm -hmm. see that I can walk across genres because I've done pretty much everything. I've I've actually shot the, I shot the debut film of Lulu Wang, mm -hmm. uh, who did uh, The Farewell. I shot yeah. her debut film Posthumous, which is a romantic comedy. I did many different projects. I did dark mystery thrillers. And uh, straight after Guns Akimbo, I wanted to do something very extremely different. So I did a period series uh, set in 16th century Tudor England Whoa. Uh, drama. So there was uh, uh, something very different. And now I look for a new for a new challenge. Like as I've done it before with Anthony, I feel like if the script is interesting, the story is intriguing, I like to find a visual language for a new story, a new project and just keep moving into different genres and not get stuck into one thing. I love to explore new fields. So this was my first action movie. I'm looking forward to do <laughs> a quite a drama now. So I'm very open. Sweet. So the period series that you shot, what's it called? It's called The Spanish Princess and it's for Stars and Lionsgate. Oh, wow. It's, it's actually very, it's the second season of a series and it's actually very interesting because it's uh, it's kind of portraits, 16th century Tudor England, mostly around Catherine of Aragon and Henry mm -hmm. VIII. But it, it, it focuses very much on the female perspective uh, of the of these times. And I really enjoyed um, the process on this because it was a very special and different project. 
That's awesome. So where can people find you online if they want to find you? Best is my website, www.stefantubeck.com or via IMDb, you'll also find a link to my mm -hmm. website. Cool. And yeah. we'll put the link in, in our show notes so people can just kind of check that out. Yeah, excellent. And uh, uh, definitely check out Guns Akimbo if you haven't already. Thank you so much for coming out. It was great to meet you. Thank you so much. I was excited to be here. All right. Thank you, Stefan. Thanks for coming by. Can't wait to uh, see what whatever you do next. Uh, honestly, my mind is still kind of reeling from that interview. So, and, and also just how quickly it came together. It's pretty awesome. Hey, Ben, it is bill paying time. Oh, right. I love paying bills, especially during the coronavirus. Uh, you know what? If, if we keep saying coronavirus, we're going to have to have uh, Ben Katz make a swear jar for that now, too. I don't know what it's going to sound I'm, I'm like. I'm fine with the coronavirus swear jar. I mean, like, we're, maybe it'll just be the sound of someone about? like coughing or something. It's <laughs> 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 bad taste. And on that happy note, uh, it's bill paying time. Bill paying time. Uh, and. And our uh, sponsor, as always, is Aperture. Yeah, uh, Aperture, you know, hearing it, we're going to mix it up a little. Do you know Aperture makes monitors? They know they're known for their LED lighting. I didn't know that. I did not know that, actually. They make a couple of monitors, and one of them is called the VS2 Fine. And it's widely recognized as one of the best portable monitors in the industry. And it has features HDMI. It, it is a uh, powerhouse little monitor that uh, does not set you back very much money. Very, very inexpensive, this uh, this monitor. And How much produce, does it run for? It varies a lot. It's, it seems like some of them have been uh, discontinued, but I will say that all of them seem to be under 300 bucks. Uh, so, oh, yeah. that's a great price. Yeah, so pretty pretty darn cheap. I mean, for that price, you can just use them as coasters at a party or something. I mean, like that's a, that's so that's the cheapest monitor you'll ever have. You well, can you know make a whole wall of them. Uh, I, I I don't know if it's the cheapest. There are very inexpensive monitors out there, but this is one of the best inexpensive monitors out there. And uh, we will put a link to it on the Hot Red Cameras website because I know that we sell it. I know that we have it in stock because I saw it in the showroom. So uh, yeah, the VS2 Fine monitor from Aperture definitely. Give it a look if you are thinking about picking up a small onboard style monitor. Hey, and speaking of your showroom, Ilya, what is uh, what's going on with Hot Rod and uh, and the current coronavirus? And I'm asking because I honestly don't know the answer. Uh, it's a little doomy and gloomy at the moment. It is dark. <laughs> uh, yes, is we, we've been ordered to uh, close down our, our retail space. So we are still doing uh, online orders and service and everything else. And people can call us. We uh, we are accepting orders over the phone. But yes, the uh, the showroom is shuttered and uh we have been able to arrange uh, to do pickups and deliveries uh, as needed, but um, for the most part, yeah, you can't just pop in now to uh, peruse our wonderful selection of cameras and lenses and lighting and all of that stuff. Yeah, And more importantly, nobody can come in and ask for you and demand a t-shirt at the moment. That That's true. You will have to uh, demand a t-shirt some other in some other way. <laughs> Rudely. Loudly. Mm, thanks. <laughs> Well, hopefully this uh, this crisis passes and uh, all of us and hopefully everyone is staying healthy and gets through it. And, uh, you know, uh, God willing, it'll all be over in a matter of a couple of months at most. Uh, we, we are trying our best to uh, stay strong, stay safe, stay positive. Uh, it is not easy to be optimistic these days, but uh, trying to uh, just enjoy as much time as I can with loved ones because, uh, frankly, uh, there there isn't a lot going on at the shop, as as you might imagine. It seems like just, <laughs> just about everywhere things have kind of uh, slowed down. I know an awful lot of people who are out of work. One of our uh, really good friends, actually, of uh, the company uh, who makes custom furniture is going to build me some custom furniture. Uh, his company is called 
called Heavy Hardware. His name's Jeff Wilkins, and boy, his stuff is amazing. But he needed a project to do, so now he's he's building me a, a custom table for our new theater space, our new uh, color Sweet. grading sort of yeah space, and needs a custom table. And he's going to do this awesome uh, sort of like it, you might see things sort of like it on Etsy, but it's not like that. It's like it's it's heavy duty steel and wood and distressed and sanded and oh, clean nice. and yeah it's 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 going to be outstanding he's already sending me like progress photos and i only spoke with him about it this morning and it's like oh hey check this out i already you know glued these these this timber together and put all this thing that, like this and yeah so uh you know really looking forward to that and we'll share some photos and some links once it all comes together you know even as you describe that it just reminds me of something that i probably don't say to you often enough and that's I really like your style. Oh, <laughs> thank you, sir. For real. Uh, yeah. uh, right now I'm wearing a t-shirt that says, uh, procrastinators, leaders of tomorrow. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> and now short ends. All right. So Ilya, <laughs> yeah. uh, it is time for short ends. So, so Ben, what is your, uh, what is your short end of the week? My short end is zoom.us, not to be confused with the Zoom recorder that I'm currently using to record myself. Zoom.us is a, uh, an online like teleconferencing software, so it enables people to do virtual meetings, sort of like uh, Google Hangouts or Skype or something. Honestly, it's a lot better. And the reason that I'm kind of stoked about it and the, uh, the reason I've been kind of thinking about it for the last week is Bob DeRosa, the guy who I co-created 20 Seconds to Live With and co-wrote Video Palace with. He and I are writing, uh, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, we're writing another audio project for another audio producing company that will be named later if uh, it goes into production. We'll see. But we were hired to write a script. And part of our process when we're writing a script is we want to hear it out loud to see if it's working when people say the words that we've been writing. And we had, you know, about two weeks ago, we'd lined up a cast to do a table read of the script of some really good friends who are amazing actors that we were, you know, that we thought would be good in the various roles. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> everything went into lockdown and people aren't supposed to leave their houses and nothing seems less essential than going to a table read of a script. And so we sort of said, okay, well, we're just not going to do it. And then I, I forget if it was Bob or me who was like, well, what if we just did it at like a teleconference? And it was like, huh, yeah, we could do that. And we just did it today, just a few hours ago, honestly. Um, we, we had seven actors plus Bob and myself. So we had nine people on the screen at once. We paid the $15 for one month. And uh, I'm going to keep using it to record uh, interviews for our podcast for at least the next month. But anyway, we had nine up. And we were able to uh, kind of get the script, you know, parse out the characters so that seven people could do all the all the roles. And we were able to do a, a table read. And then when you're done, it's been recording it in video the whole time. So I was able to save it all as video files. And also, like, when we were done, we kind of got feedback from all the actors because they're all good friends of ours and have good senses of story. And we kind of wanted to know what they thought in general, like what was working, what wasn't working, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I was able to record that, which is even better than having like notes that you scribble down. I have like an actual recording of everyone telling us what they were thinking and kind of in real time. So I think Zoom is pretty cool. And I think that uh, we're probably going to see a lot of people doing telecommuting or, you know, working remotely and doing meetings via Zoom in, in the months to come. It might be one of the things 
that if I was to guess right now, one of the things that's going to hang around with us after the coronavirus is uh, once once the tragedy part of it is over, is that technology such as this is going to be a way that more of us are going to be just comfortable doing business because it's easy to do. You're able to do it from wherever you are. And, uh, you know, the ability to record it is is pretty amazing. So like if you were doing a meeting, just a regular old meeting, but you wanted to record it so that you could go back and see what everyone said, you would have that recording. It would be it's a lot handier, frankly, than meeting face to face in a room. So I, I guess my real short end is not being in the room with other people really feeds into my misanthropy. <laughs> and what is your short end? <laughs> I'm All right. just kidding. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, you you were talking about the don't go to the movie theater if that is uh, the, that is your impulse right now. I'm going to disagree with you and say no. My short end is the exact opposite of what you were saying in the close focus. Uh, you should absolutely go to one of the 327 drive-in movie theaters that still exist in this country. Ah. As a matter of fact, in well this played. in this era of social distancing. The drive-in is now your own personal bubble of isolation and uh, germ protection from the outside world. Uh, there, there are, uh, as a matter of fact, there is one in Austin, Texas, which is running a little thing they're calling South by Social Distancing, which is sort of a play on any everything that South by does, because South by is always like, oh, South by education or South by movies or South mm-hmm. by music. They're South by Social Distancing. And what they're doing is they've invited all the people who had short films that were supposed to be showing right now at the 2020 South by Film Festival, but because they're not, uh, they're giving them a venue. If you want to go to this, uh, the Starlight Drive-In, uh, they it's a they actually think they call it the um, uh, the Mini Urban Drive-In. I think it's it's smaller, but still a fair size. They're showing all the short cool. films, and I think there are still another 300 and something uh, ones besides the Starlight in Austin that will uh, be showing other stuff right now. So if you do want to get out, you do want to see a big screen. And you have some really premium speakers in your car because now you just tune it into your FM dial for whatever the correct channel is for the audio. You can have a, a pretty cool experience looking through your windshield up at a gigantic screen. And you can totally make out. <laughs> you can, but if you do that, your window might fog up and then you're not there for the movie. <laughs> not, I, not, I've, not, uh, <laughs> like the movie, the, the drive-ins kind of like died before I was really old enough to go to them very much. And I actually remember shortly after we moved to LA, there was one in Azusa and we went and saw, uh, it was a double feature of something in Azusa. It's the only, I think it's the only time I've actually been to Azusa, everything from A to Z in the USA is the name of that city. Um, but, uh, uh, but, but I, it's the only time as an adult that I had been to a drive-in and I was like, this is a kind of a cool experience. It's like camping. It is a little like camping. Um, it's a little bit of an awkward experience. It's it's never perfect, uh, depending on your car and who you park next to and, and everything else doing the drive-in. Mm-hmm. And the, the traffic to get in and to get out can be insane. But uh, if you do want to support a, a form of movie going right now uh, and you have a drive-in near you, go to a drive-in. Why not? You get to uh, isolate yourself, bring your own snacks. They, I think they charge a reduced price like per car load so you can get a whole bunch of people in there. Uh, I remember my parents took me to see The Jungle Book at a drive-in. That was the first time I'd, nice. I'd, ever, I'd ever been to a drive-in. Yeah. Very cool. So, Ben, I think that just about does it for uh, for us here for uh, episode one, uh, mid-pandemic, not in the same room. Uh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully it, <laughs> mid. Okay. Uh, well, uh, during pandemic, uh, current pandemic or whatever it is, hopefully it is mid. Yes, it'll be over. Uh, well, we'll see. Everyone is kind of a... Uh, throwing uh throwing spaghetti at the wall I'm, right now to I'm guess. just yeah. i'm not guessing anything i'm just uh <laughs> i'm just 
doing everything I can to keep working and uh, not die. Well, so, I think mid you know. mid pandemic's the correct vernacular then, because you know it's 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 going on right now. It's it's ongoing, ongoing pandemic. Yeah. So. <laughs> but I'm so glad we don't have a swear jar uh, sound effect for that right now. This episode, it would be nothing but coughing. So it would be nothing but to be bad. <laughs> and, and you know, all all we can do is is try to laugh and and make a glib uh, jokes and comments about this because otherwise you have to cry. It is a, a massive. Uh, you yeah, know, it's it's a pretty uh, uncertain time and uh, and I'm glad that we have this to kind of uh, keep a focus on and I appreciate our listeners being patient not just with our gloom and doom about it but also the fact that we're adjusting to not being in the same room while we record it so it might sound a little different uh, you know we're using the same microphone so it probably sounds more or less normal but ish yeah uh, so I think similar. it's impossible yeah. for for it to not be stylistically a little different and hopefully we won't have to deal with this for very long I, I am actually using an, an inferior microphone than we typically use. So no. It, yes, it is. It is a little inferior. So, so it may well, sound I'm using like different. when we started doing this, we bought the same mics that we have at your office. I know. But I, I have the two OG ones that I, I started I, with. Yeah, this is, I don't, I don't have that. That's, uh, I'm using, I'm, I'm and, using something And else. I'm using both of them right now. Just, <laughs> just at the same time. <laughs> Mama said, knock you me. out LL Cool J style. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so who do we need to thank today? Uh, yeah, let, let's let's thank, of course, our producer Alana Cody. Let's thank uh, our tremendous editor Ben Katz, who uh, who wrote into us. Thank you so much, Ben. Let's thank Kay's thank Alatrachi, who uh, made our music. Kay's like has time to kill now, so maybe he's actually listening to the podcast. And uh, we love your music, Kay's, and uh, thanks for. Uh, doing what you did and if you're not listening to the podcast uh you know well that's we're used to it <laughs> if you're not the, if you're not listening to the podcast you've got cooties <laughs> so uh Ilya, where can people find you online uh you can find me over at hot red cameras hotredcameras.com basically your uh, premier high-end uh, authority for anything that has to do with technology for the motion picture industry be it cameras lenses lighting uh and a whole lot more uh, yeah, you can find me at Ben Rock Online, and frankly, online is the only place you're going to find me right now because I'm not leaving the house. Um, but please uh, feel free to reach out to me on uh, social media and say hello, and uh, I'm checking it more than usual because I got nothing else to do. Hey, uh, call to action, listeners, people, uh, write to us. Uh, let us know what's going on with you. What? Let us know what you'd like us to do differently. Let us know if you want us to bring on a new project. Uh, we're going to be, I think, opening the floodgates here a little bit uh, to uh, maybe... Uh, maybe some guests outside of sort of our usual thing to keep things going or to try to increase frequency. If you've got ideas, uh, we want to hear them. Also, I'm, I'm interested from listeners, like how are you weathering the coronavirus storm and are you making, are, are you seeing movies? I feel like a lot of us are stuck at home and streaming is a thing that we can just do all the time. What are you seeing? What's, what's bringing you comfort? What's making you happy? Yeah. I'd like to know that too. Cause you know, uh, for me, it's, it's a cup of tea. That's about it. <laughs> cup of tea and a lot of uh, a lot of tv yeah yeah I, w- I wish it was more tv but uh with what with the baby it's hard to uh hard to watch too much of it anyway we will see you next week at the cinematography podcast this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.